from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. When did COVID-19 arrive in the U.S.? The case of Patricia Dowd of Santa Clara, California, who died in February, was thought to be the first. But pathologist Dr. Judy Milanek has other ideas. Her exposure didn't occur in February, close to when she died. It actually more likely occurred in early January. You said in your piece that, is it possible then that COVID-19 virus was on U.S. soil earlier than January, maybe even as early as November? You said it's not just possible, but it's likely. Explain. The reason I think it's uh, not just possible, but likely is if she's exposed in early January and she's a healthy person and it takes her a month to get sick and die, then it makes sense that other people who would be more vulnerable would potentially die, but they would not necessarily come to the attention of the medical examiner's office. That's our story coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Since early January, we've been watching COVID-19 sweep across the world, killing thousands and sickening millions. The cough, the fever, the shortness of breath, have been highlighted as the most recognizable symptoms, but a lot of people have suspected that they or others have had it, not recently, but as far back as last fall, well before China and the World Health Organization notified the rest of the world. I'm one of those people wondering about that, so in looking into it, I found an article that seems to confirm those suspicions. The person that wrote it is noted pathologist Dr. Judy Melanick. She's our guest. And on this episode, I guarantee, if you haven't thought about it, you will after this. Dr. Melanick, um, let me just say, I read your article with great fascination because I've been working on this for months, literally since, since early January. And something just wasn't right to me about people being sick here with certain symptoms and things. Mm-hmm. Of course, this didn't dawn on me until after we found out about coronavirus, but then um, it made perfect sense. And reading your article was like, okay, so now I'm not crazy. I just I, wanted I to just get you. a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. So tell me about your article. Describe what you wrote. Describe what led you to write that. I'm a forensic pathologist in the San Francisco Bay Area. So as a forensic pathologist and someone who's knowledgeable about potentially transmissible infectious diseases, it was on my radar that COVID-19 was occurring in the world uh, prior to uh, January of this year. Uh, We were aware of the news that was coming out of China and then eventually uh, Italy as well and Europe. Um, So it was only a matter of time before it was going to show up in the United States. The question was when and where. Um, So for myself, I actually uh, had suspicion of a case uh, in late January, 
and had called out the CDC to come and assist me in doing the autopsy. They took specimens. We got the results back within about 10 days. Uh, so when I heard months later, which was basically two, at this point two weeks ago, uh, that Santa Clara County had recently reclassified uh, cases from February as being due to COVID-19 and that they had only recently gotten back the CDC results, that just didn't make sense to me because I knew that from my own experience on my case that was negative, that turned out to be completely negative, that the CDC was actually in late January, early February, very responsive. And their turnaround time at the then was actually quite rapid. It's it's gotten worse now because of the pandemic in the United States. But at the time, they were responding within you know a week or two in terms of their results uh, when we're talking about uh, late January, early February. So I was really surprised about the fact that it took so long to get this uh, conclusive results out of Santa Clara County, and I wanted to know more about it. In the early stages of the coronavirus spread, there was a lot of confusion about where it came from, how bad it would be, how long it would hang around, and how did we spread it? That's a part of the reason things on the research front began to slow down. There were so many unanswered questions. Another part was the global scramble to insulate ourselves from it, to escape. But while we were all scrambling to save ourselves, some of those who unfortunately didn't make it were leaving some very important clues behind for us, clues that Dr. Melanick and others would discover later on. Then I had been approached by uh, the press, I believe it was uh, the uh, Mercury News or the Chronicle, I can't remember which one, um, both had reported about it. They uh, gave me a copy of the autopsy report of Patricia Dowd, um, who was allegedly the first case of a COVID-19 death from community spread in the United States. So when I looked at the autopsy report, the first thing that really struck me was the fact that her heart had ruptured even though it was a normal size and shape. It was 290 grams. That's the size of your fist. It's a perfectly normal sized heart. And that just doesn't make sense to me. Um, heart rupture is something that we see in the context of high blood pressure. We see it in cases where people have high cholesterol. We don't typically see it in an otherwise healthy person who is just mildly overweight. That's about it. Um, so the fact that the heart muscle had evidence of infection from COVID-19 was a really important finding. And more importantly, the description of the microscopic observations, what the cells looked like under the microscope, indicated that the infection had been there for a while. This is the thing that many of us were missing in the beginning. We thought that people with underlying conditions were the most at risk and healthy people would be okay. And then there was the issue of the timing of the onset of the symptoms. As we know, COVID-19 does not kill you generally, suddenly and unexpectedly. It takes about two weeks to develop symptoms from the majority of people. Most, More than 90% of people will develop symptoms within two weeks of being exposed. And then it doesn't usually kill those people right away. Even the ones, who, many people, the majority of people will recover or they might even be asymptomatic. But the people who die don't, again, die immediately. It takes them another two more weeks to die. So given what I know about pathology, and the description of the autopsy found findings in Dowd's case, it made sense to me that her exposure didn't occur in February, close to when she died. It actually ex more likely occurred in early January. 
um, for that time course to make sense from a microscopic pathologic standpoint. You said in your piece that, is it possible then that COVID-19 virus was on U.S. soil earlier than January, maybe even as early as November? You said it's not just possible, but it's likely. Explain. The reason I think it's uh, not just possible, but likely, is if she's exposed in early January, and she's a healthy person, and it takes her a month to get sick and die, then it makes sense that other people who would be more vulnerable would potentially die, but they would not necessarily come to the attention of the medical examiner's office. In fact, throughout this country, all of our forensic pathologists have we've been talking to one another through email lists and through our professional organizations, and we were all expecting that the first deaths of COVID-19 patients would not occur in a medical examiner system at a coroner or medical examiner's office because we disproportionately see people who die suddenly, violently, or unexpectedly. We don't see people who present with symptoms and get sick over the course of um, weeks or months. And COVID-19 kills people over the course of weeks or even months. So we were not expecting to see these cases right away. And so for me, it seems, um, I'm just incredulous that the first case of community spread and death on human on American soil uh, occurred on February 6th. It makes a lot more sense that there were deaths and illnesses in the community prior to that, but they were just not being recognized as being due to COVID-19. And then speaking, of course, to clinicians and, co- you know, some of my clinical colleagues are saying, oh yeah, in late fall, early winter, we were having lots of cases of people with pneumonia and ARDS, and they were testing negative for influenza A and B, but we didn't have COVID-19 testing at the time. So some of those people, in fact, a significant number of them in Santa Clara County uh, may have died and not have been certified correctly. And they may have even gotten death certificates written by clinicians based on their underlying disease, saying that they died, for instance, of complications of smoking, COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or complications of heart failure. And the other thing you have to keep in mind is what else does COVID-19 do? COVID-19 causes thrombosis. It causes blood to clot. And people with COVID-19 can present, instead of with respiratory problems, instead they can present with pulmonary emboli, which are clots that uh, are start in the veins of the legs and then travel to the lungs or clots in the blood vessels of the heart. So it looks just like a heart attack. And it's also possible. And like I said, likely that there were cases before Patricia Dowd's case of people who died of um, clotting related abnormalities, whether it's pulmonary emboli or heart attacks that were missed COVID-19 infection cases. You have presented what I think is a part of a body of growing evidence that seems to prove that COVID-19 was in Western Europe and the U.S. perhaps as, perhaps as early as the f- last fall. So here's what we found. The World Military Games took place in Wuhan from October 18th to the 27th of 2019. 10,000 athletes from all over the world went there, including participants from the U.S. Many of them came home sick. And here's two examples. At the Wuhan Military World Championship, this was on the front page of one of Italy's top newspapers uh, today. Front page. It says, at the Wuhan Military World Championship, we all got sick. Six out of six in the apartment and a lot of other delegations too. So much so that the medical center had almost run out of medicine. This is according to one of the 
fencing champions from the Italian team. He said, this is what happened last October. It's possible we had contact with coronavirus. I had a fever and cough for three weeks, and the antibiotics did nothing. There is a report from French athletes that were there that says pretty much the same thing. What do you think about that? I think that the way we can figure that out is to get them all antibody tested. So if people are reporting having developed symptoms that are compatible with COVID-19, especially young, healthy people like these athletes, um, they may have been exposed to it. They may have been exposed to something else. Um, It could have been um, a different type of uh, virus (laughs) that we're not also aware of at this point. So it could have been something else that's less lethal. But the question I have is, could it have been COVID-19? Yeah, it's possible. One way to find out is to check them for antibodies to see if they uh, are immune. Um, And so that's one way of figuring it out. Another way of figuring it out is um, if there are any family members who have lost someone um, who had, you know, went to the hospital around that time. We're talking about December, you know, the the currently the what at least China was reporting is that the first uh, case is in Wuhan in November. But if there are deaths in the United States in uh, November, December, January that fit these symptoms and were negative for influenza A and B, if there were specimens taken, for example, lung biopsy specimens or bronchoscopic bronchoscopy uh, biopsy uh, specimens taken in the hospital, the family members of those people can get those specimens and have them sent to the CDC to look to see if there's evidence of virus in those specimens, because those would still exist in the pathology laboratory of the hospital. And that would answer that question as well. But it would have to be with the consent of the family. Um, Right. Potentially, the CDC could step in and ask for that if they knew of people. So you could you know, have a dialogue with your local public health department to try to figure that out. But, but I suspect as time goes on, we're go- and as antibody testing becomes FDA approved, currently, as far as I know, um, it hasn't been, they've been fast-tracked, but they haven't been approved yet. Um, but as F- antibody testing go online, um, we may have better answers from people who, just like these athletes, describe symptoms from that time period and then end up being positive. The origin. What do you think, where do you think it came from and and what do you think were the circumstances? I can't answer that. That's outside the realm of my expertise. I know you're a pathologist, but do you have any hunches or anything of your own? No, I wouldn't be. I would just be speculative. It would just be speculative on my part. Speculation. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I... I'm just reading what's in the paper, just like everybody else, that it came from Wuhan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unclear right now. Uh, it seems to be a natural source. It does not appear to be a bioweapon or anything made in a lab. It doesn't have any evidence of that. But these are just things I've read in the paper. I have no reason to question it otherwise. Have you ever seen anything like this in your pathological work? Uh well, I mean, it's a question of what do you mean like this? I Yes, I've seen infections <laughs> in my pathological work every year. Uh, we do. I have, mean, what yeah. I what I mean, what I mean by this is, have you seen some type of disease or virus that acts or does what this does? Is this is this an, a new thing that you're seeing or is this something that is just the latest in what hap- what could be centuries of virus mutations? Ooh, I. Uh, 
it's such a broad question, I don't really know how to answer it. So individually, the things that are described about COVID-19, I've seen with different types of infectious processes, but I haven't seen them all put together in one virus, if I can answer it that way. So, you know, Mm -hmm. ARDS, which is adult respiratory distress syndrome or acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, we see that as a consequence of end-stage lung infection from lots of viruses, including influenza A and B, um, but we don't see it to the extent that we see it in COVID-19. Um, the vascular lesions with a thrombosis, the small vessel uh, clotting that we see that's associated with COVID, sometimes you see that in a syndrome called DIC or disseminated intravascular coagulation, um, which occurs with other infections, but again, not to the degree that we see it with COVID-19. And um, what's uh, at least most recently described is there's some sort of uh, a vasculitis and an inflammation of the blood vessels that is unique in kids and um, damage to the blood vessels also in the skin so that they get um, uh, these red areas or red patches on the tips of their fingers and toes that looks a lot like uh, frostbite. Um, That's unusual. (laughs) I've never seen that before uh, associated with a virus. So that's new for me. but, you know, these are, these are all pathophysiologic mechanisms that we've seen before. It's just packaged in a new way and a lot more aggressive in terms of how it spreads in the community and the breadth of the people that it affects. Uh, not only people who are immune compromised and um, at risk, but also kids, middle-aged people, people with no pre-existing conditions who can also die of it. So uh, it is it is unusual. And obviously the scale, the magnitude of mm-hmm. the deaths is something that is unprecedented. I mean, I, I was one of the 30 pathologists in New York for 9-11 and, you know, the experience of being there uh, during uh, the most uh, extreme mass fatality event to date from terrorism on American soil was overwhelming in and of itself. And that's that's happening every day now in the United States. It's just horrifying in terms of the scale of the impact uh, that this virus has had on the um, American population. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I was standing on the roof of the VOA building on the 9-11, watching the Pentagon burn just across the street from the Capitol, and I've never felt more helpless in my entire life than that day. Until now. But <laughs> Until now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is exactly the... Um, the juxtaposition of thinking that I was uh, getting to is now. So you wrote as well, the revelation that COVID-19 killed Patricia Dowd in early February pushes back our assumption about the onset of community spread in the U.S. by a month. More and more, uh, more and earlier cases will emerge, and we're going to find out that this date is probably wrong, too. So what do you think this means for other locations in this state, based on what you found? What I think is I mean, other sorry, sorry, other locations, other locations in the country. What I think is that it's really important for us to try to figure out to do the detective work and try to figure out when did COVID-19 actually arrive in the United States. Um, There are people right now in the middle of the battle who are saying, why should we look back? You know, we are still fighting the battle right now. Why should we try to figure out when it started? And I think it's really important to try to figure out when it started for two reasons. Number one is that by figuring out when it actually arrived on U.S. soil and how it arrived, it will help us understand better what we might be missing about it. Why was it missed for so long? 
Why mm. only now is Santa Clara County reclassifying? I think they've, they're up to nine cases that they initially didn't realize were due to COVID-19 and are actually due to COVID-19. So we don't want to miss those cases. And we don't want to miss those cases, number one, because the numbers of cases matter, because that's how policymakers and epidemiologists decide whether to reopen. <laughs> okay, so we need to have accurate numbers about the uh, impact this virus has had on our population. That's the first reason why it's important for us to look back. And the second reason why it's important for us to look back is there are parts of this country that haven't really been affected yet, okay, that don't have any cases or have, ha have a few cases but don't have any deaths yet. And by the areas of the country that were first affected figuring out what they missed, why they missed it, we can then educate and inform our colleagues in other parts of the country so that they don't make the same mistakes. That's why it's important. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you think is important? Yeah. The, the, I would ask me, what do you, forensic pathologists, what do you need? <laughs> what, do, what do forensic pathologists need in order to be able to do this job? So that, that would be a good question. All right. So what is it that you need to do this job? Okay. The first thing I need, not just me personally, but all forensic pathologists need, is we need testing, testing, testing. We need to be able to get access to uh, easy, quick uh, results, not just on RNA, but also on antibody testing. They can complement each other. So uh, the delays that are happening in terms of testing and the fact that it's not readily available and cheap is a problem. It's standing in our way. Um, obviously, we also need PPEs just like all physicians throughout this country, not just for uh, caring for the living, but also to be able to do our work with the dead so that uh, we can have better data for public health models. Um, and then um, the third thing that we need besides uh, testing and PPEs is we need um, support for the forensic pathology and um, death community, that includes morticians as well, to be able to uh, respond and help families with the grieving process, um, process the remains, um, help uh, people find closure. Uh, one way of supporting um, our community that would be very helpful is to not stifle us politically. So I don't know if you've seen in the news, uh, there were recent reports of the Florida Medical Examiner's Commission's putting out numbers about the numbers of death from COVID-19, and then politicians trying to stifle them and tell them not to release those numbers, even though they're public records. So not interfering with the works of the scientists, letting, letting the pathologists and the coroners and the medical examiners throughout this country speak openly and document document the, their findings and communicate with one another without being muzzled by uh, public health or by politicians would be also incredibly helpful. Dr. Melanick, thank you. I appreciate your time on this. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Today. Good to meet you. Take care. That was pathologist Dr. Judy Melanick with an eye-opening story. Basically, the coronavirus arrived here in the States a lot sooner than we thought. And that also means the number of people that died and the number of people sickened is probably a whole lot higher. We'll continue to follow that story. But coming up on our next episode, Life After Coronavirus. In the meantime, send me your questions and comments and thoughts in an email. Send it to jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. 
jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And also, if you want more national and international security news, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Podcast One presents, this is a collect call from Sing Sing. My name is John J. Lennon. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. I'm also a contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. Imagine trying to stay focused and talk about issues of substance with geeks slamming, prisoners screaming, and PAs blaring in the background. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.